Well, good morning. All right, here we go. All right. If you have your Bibles, grab them. Acts chapter 9 is where we'll be this morning as we continue our study through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9. And I'm realizing I think I made a mistake. I think I put the wrong scripture on the slide, so that's my best. You've got to actually open your book. I'm sorry. So we're going to be in verse 1. I think I started at verse 9. My bad. All right, so chapter 9, verse 1. Luke writes in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for, my, for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell, fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. I remember being in youth group, and, uh, you know, in youth, you'd go to different retreats and camps and things. I remember being at one retreat, and there, the speaker was sharing his testimony, and he was talking about how he grew up in this gang life, and, and he was in uh, sh gang shootings a lot, and he was moving drugs a lot, and his life was marked just by every, you know, bad thing you could really think about, and he was kind of talking about all those things, and, and the, the, his story kind of ended with, uh, he was at the end of his life, he was ready to call it quits. He was ready uh, to take a gun to his head and put it all to bed and be done with it. He was done with the drugs. He was done with it all. And, and right there before he was ready uh, you know, to kill himself, he, he sees a Bible sitting. And he didn't even know where it came from, but he sees this Bible and he opens it and reads it, gets saved, and his life has changed forever. And everybody's like, whoa, this is crazy. And I'm sure you have heard similar stories, stories like that, big stories of dramatic conversions where somebody goes from, you know, this crazy life in, of, of drugs or gangs or, or whatever, and they get uh, converted and their whole life is transformed and made new and changed. M many of you have heard stories like that. But it makes, I think, us wonder sometimes about our own stories, about our own testimonies, our own salvation stories. 
And I think sometimes in our mind we can say, maybe, maybe your story is not like that, and so it's like, maybe mine's not as powerful, it's not as dramatic, and you can almost feel like you're missing out on something. Like that, that you don't know God in the same way because you've kind of been in church since you were in the womb, and you've never not been in church. I think this morning, this Bible story uh, that talks about the Apostle Paul's conversion, which is this very dramatic conversion, right? He goes from being a terrorist to someone who writes part of the Bible, and it's quite dramatic. And I think when we, when we, we see this story, we look at Paul's testimony, it, it, as it's similar to these powerful stories we hear today, I think, though, that this story actually reveals four things that I want you to see briefly this morning. Four things that are true in every one of our stories. That even though Paul's story is big and dramatic and Jesus just appears to him and, and is blinded and all this stuff, that there are still four truths that are true for every one of us who have come to know the Lord. For every person who does come to know the Lord, these four things are true of you no matter what. No matter if you were saved in prison ministry or if you were saved at five years old at a VBS, these things are true. This text is a reminder to us that no matter what your salvation story is like, we can see the hand of God at work from beginning to end. No matter what your salvation story is like, we can see the hand of God at work in your life, in this work, from beginning to end. So the four things in this text we see this morning, they're true of all of us who belong to Jesus. Now let me qualify that, because I don't think that everyone in this room belongs to Jesus. In a room this size, not all of us do. So if you belong to Jesus, these things are true of you. God pursues us, God humbles us, God opens our eyes, and God sends us. So, let's dive in. We find Paul on this road to Damascus. He's gotten permission from the higher-ups to, to travel to Damascus and go wherever he wants and to round up Christians and arrest them or stone them and put them to death. And so he's traveling on the road to Damascus, and on that journey, all of a sudden, this bright light appears and almost engulfs him, uh, and he hears the voice of Jesus say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, if I say Saul or Paul, they're, they're interchangeable. It's the same name, okay? So he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, it's interesting because later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 26, Paul adds some dialogue to this story that gives us some greater clarity of what's happening. And so he says, you know, why, why, are you per- why are you persecuting me? And then he says, Jesus says to him, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. What a weird line. It, it, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Like, what in the world does that mean? We use that word today, right, the word goad, when you say, man, he goaded me into doing this. He goaded me into riding that really big, scary roller coaster at Kings Island that I didn't want to read, ride, and then I threw up, right? He goaded me into it, right? It, it, it means to, to be pushed, to be provoked, to be motivated into doing something. But actually, the word goad comes historically from this this jab, this prod, this thing that you would uh, stick into the back of an ox's leg to motivate him to keep pulling, you know, the, the, the plow. And so a, a, a goad was something you, you prodded, you poked this ox's leg with to keep him moving, to goad him on, to keep moving, to keep pulling. So you see something 
had been goading Paul. Something had been prodding Paul. Had been nagging at him. Maybe it was the death of Stephen that he ordered. We talked about a few weeks ago. Maybe it was unanswered questions about Jesus and who he is. Maybe it was not really understanding this new movement called the way. They weren't called Christians yet. They were called the way. And how no matter how many of them he, they, he killed, they all died. They were all martyred with dignity and grace. And they just kept growing. Like you kill one and two come out of its place. Maybe he didn't understand those things, but the, whatever it was, there was this, this idea something was goading him, was pushing him, it was nagging him. There were, these types of things were wounding him almost, pressuring him. And so he was kicking against it, he was kicking against the goads, kicking against, fighting back against those things that were pressuring him or pushing him or making him uncomfortable about Jesus. You see, though Paul did not yet understand what, it was, what was happening, he didn't understand why these things were bothering him, why they were goading him, and why he was so fighting against it. He didn't understand what that was, but now, in hindsight, he did, and we do, and we know that it was that God was pursuing him, that the Holy Spirit was after Paul. Some have called or referred to this idea as the Holy Spirit as the hound of heaven. This idea that like a hound dog who catches a scent and will not stop tracking until he finds the thing that he's looking for. In the same way, God, once he comes after you, will hound you and goad you and pursue you until he has you. Many of us in this room, we can talk about how in our life, maybe we went a long time. We were in and out of church, and we really fought it for a while, and, and, and maybe when we were little and we stopped going, but that... Once we came back and once we came to the Lord, when you look back in your life, you see how God was just pursuing you and was after you and doing these things in your life the whole time. And you didn't notice it before, but now when you look back, you can see God's hand all along in your life bringing you up to this point. Every step of the way, you could see the Lord preparing your heart, tilling the soil of your heart, softening your heart. Until he could finally break through its stone walls. Verse 7 says that the men who were traveling with Paul uh, on the road to Damascus, uh, they were speechless, right? They, they, they heard the voice, but they didn't see the light. They, they didn't see the big light that Paul was engulfed in. They just heard the voice from it, and they were speechless. You see, what, what's happening when God pursues you, there are people around you who may encounter the same things. There are people around you who may hear the same sermons, who may have been in the same Bible studies, who may have uh, watched the, the Chosen with you. If you ain't watched The Chosen, plug, go home and watch The Chosen. TV show about Jesus, it's awesome. But, but, but there are people who have been in the same experiences, heard the same sermons, read the same books, been witnessed to by the same person. But to them, it was just noise. To them, it went in one ear and out the other. To you, that sermon was the very word of God. That Bible study, God spoke to you. That TV show, God moved you. To you, it was a different experience. Understand that none of us come to faith in a vacuum. 
None of us are just out isolated on our own without any outside influences coming to faith. You see, whether you were in a gang selling drugs and shootouts and had this big dramatic conversion, or if you were five years old at, a, at your second VBS, you gave your life to Christ. In both situations, the reason is because God was pursuing you. He was after you. He was coming for you. You see, the same God and the same power that goes after the one whose life is a mess is the same God and the same power that goes after the five-year-old who's, who lives in a Christian home and knows all the books of the Bible in order already. The first thing that is true of everyone who comes to salvation, every, the, same thing, the first thing that is true of all of our salvation story is that God pursues us. God pursues us. Now, immediately after this encounter with God, we find Paul blinded, right? He, so he's got these like scale things over his eyes. He can't see. He's not able to see. So he's got to be led by the hand by these other guys that were with him all the way to Damascus. And, all, and for the next three days, he doesn't eat and he doesn't drink and he's blind. Imagine what's going on in his head. Imagine the, the thoughts and the circling and, 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 and the meditating and the trying to figure out what's going on. How wrong Imagine, like, in his head, like, how wrong he was about everything. How wrong he was about Jesus. But how his whole life, up to that point, was in error. How his whole life devoted, I mean, Paul, Saul, was a, was, a, was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was probably in the Sanhedrin. He was the top of his class Jew of Jews. He had been studying. He probably had the whole Old Testament memorized. This guy knew what he was talking about. And his whole life, up to that point, he had missed it. His whole life up to that point was an error. He missed the truth. Paul later in 1 Timothy, when he writes that book, he would say, I am the chief of sinners. Of all the sinners in the world, I am the worst. You see, in this moment, Paul has been blinded. And he has heard the voice of Jesus ask, why are you persecuting me? Paul was seeing that he wasn't as righteous as he thought he was. Paul was seeing that he wasn't as good of a person as he thought he was. He's realizing that, oh, maybe killing Christians actually is not pleasing to God. Huh. My bad. Like he's realizing that he's broken. He's realizing he was wrong, and he's realizing he was hopeless. You see, Paul the mighty was now kneeling before God. Paul, the one who thought he saw so clearly and was so smart, was now being led by the hand because he was blind. Paul, the one who seized others, was now seized by the Lord. Paul, the hammer who broke others, now was broken on the anvil of Christ. You see, as God pursues us, the first thing that always happens in every case, no matter, no matter what your situation, when God pursues you, as he begins to break through the heart of stone in our hearts, is he humbles us. He humbles us because we are confronted with the reality and the truth of who God is, how holy he is, how big and magnificent and righteous he is, and we are immediately confronted with how broken and sinful we are. I can remember in my own life, I, I had prayed a prayer when I was 10 years old because I was really scared to go to hell. And I, I went to my Sunday school teacher, and uh, uh, I was like, man, I, I need to do this. And, and I repeated a prayer after him, got baptized. 
And I don't know if I was saved there or not, but I know when I was 15 years old and, and, and I was in another situation and, and I heard this sermon and I felt how guilty I was. And the only thing I knew I needed was the grace and mercy of Jesus. You see, every time we are converted, every time, the, the moment of conversion, the moment we come to Christ, when the heart of stone is broken, we are humbled by our own inadequacy, our own failing, our, our sin, and how holy God is, and how there is a big gap and an issue between these things. You see, there is no salvation apart from our brokenness over our own sin. The Bible says that if you think you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. God humbles us. So he pursues us, he humbles us, and third, he opens our eyes. You see, Paul being blinded by God is an intentional thing because God is showing Paul and us something. See, while, while Paul thought he could see so clearly, while he thought he could see so clearly, he was actually blind all along. And now that God had taken his physical sight from him, Paul was learning to truly see for the first time. See, God is teaching us that all of us are born spiritually blind. We come out of our mother's wombs spiritually blind, unable to see or perceive the truth of the gospel. And we all, like Paul, need the scales to fall from our eyes, from our spiritual eyes, so that we might truly see. And I think that there are two types of spiritual blindness. Two types of spiritual blindness that mess us up. The first is worldly blindness. That's where you, you think religion is stupid, you think church is pointless, you think church is brainwashing kids. It's where you think the highest form of pleasure, the highest form of satisfaction uh, is, is uh, the things the world has to offer. The more money you can make, the more your dreams can come true, the deeper relationships you can have, the more popular you are, the prettier you are, the richer you are. Whatever you can have, whatever you want, if you get more of it, the happier you will be. You don't see things as sin. What we call sin, you just call a good time. That's religious, or that's worldly blindness. And then you have religious blindness. And this, I think, sadly, religion Religious blindness, I think, sadly, is more dangerous because when you're blinded by religion, you think you see clearly. You think you see the truth. You think you're safe, but really you're blind. And see, religious blindness is when you think you're good enough. When you think and you say those words, I'm a good person. I live a good life. God is going to be happy with me and take me to heaven because I don't live like all these heathens out here. Maybe I go, even go, I go to church. I give to the poor. I, I don't lie. I'm a good person. I cannot tell you how many people I hear say that on a weekly basis, and it terrifies me. Because I think in the end, I know in the end, that, pe- that good people will wake up one day, find themselves in a burning hell, Asking, their, asking the question, why in the world am I here? I thought I was a good person. See, there are two ways to go to hell. The first way to go to hell is to be really, really bad. That'll send you straight there. The second way to go to hell is be really, really good. 
I often ask kids when I'm talking to them about coming to the Lord, uh, how many sins do you think it takes um, for you to deserve to go to hell? And usually they'll look at me and say, oh, Pastor Brent, a lot of sins, a lot. And, and then I'll look at them and I'll say, actually, the Bible says it takes one. And usually there's this change of expression on their face. They go, ooh. <laughs> this realization, like, I got at least one. <laughs> Maybe not me anymore, but I at least got one. Today, people don't like that thought. We don't like to talk about hell. We don't like to, we don't like to talk about us being sinners and broken. I think it's outdated. And so what people say today is, you know what? I don't believe in a God like that. I don't believe in a judgy God, a God of justice, which is a good thing, a God of justice. Right? We want that, actually. But they, people will say, you know, I just believe in a God of love. I believe in a God of love. And really what they mean is not that they believe in a God of love because I believe in a God of love. What they really mean, you translate that, it really means I believe in a God who loves me enough to let me do whatever I want with no consequences. I believe in a God that doesn't, want, doesn't care how I live my life. He's going to let me be me and whatever that means. And then he's going to bless me and give, take me to heaven and give me everything I want. And that's just not based on any kind of reality. There's going to be a lot of good people in hell because they were blind, that they needed a Savior. The great thing, though, is once you realize, once, you, once, once the scales fall from your eyes and you can stop tricking yourself into thinking you can be good enough, then, like, you can stop trying so hard, right? Like, you can stop feeling the weight and the pressure of having to be a good enough person to get God to be on your side and love you, and you can just, like, rest and relax and chill because God's love is sufficient to cover all of your past and all of your brokenness and all of your future, too. All of it, his blood covers everything, and you can just rest in his grace, and then you can, you can try to live your life the best you can. And when you screw up, you go, God, I'm sorry, forgive me, and we're going to keep moving. We're not going to dwell on it. And it frees you. But the only way you ever get there is when the scales fall from your eyes and you can truly see. And you can rest in his love. You see, no matter what your salvation story is like, here's what I want you to understand. No matter what your, sto your story is like, there is always a moment of conversion. Okay, if you don't take anything else from today, understand this. There is always a moment of conversion. Here's what never happens. You don't just say, hey, you know what, we've had kids and we, we need to get back in church. And you start going back to church and you're in church and 30 years go by and you've been in church and you've been serving and you've been giving and you've been singing. It doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you saved. It doesn't make you right with God. Nobody just slides into Christianity. That doesn't happen. You don't just say, come to church one day and start believing all the right things and just slide in. Oh, yeah, I'm good now. I'm in. I'm doing, I'm doing the stuff. Doing the things. It's not how it works. You've got you to be converted. You've got to go from death to life. You've got to be going from blind to seeing. Like you, you've got to, you, you've got to have this moment, a moment where like Paul, you place your faith and trust in Christ. You believe that the cross was for you and that the resurrection is true and that it was for you. And you confess to him, God, I am a sinner 
and I am broken, and I've done a ton of bad stuff, and I've broken your law, and I've offended you. I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Forgive me in Christ. Let his blood wash over me and cleanse me from the inside out. I want to make you the king of my heart and the king of my life and the Lord. If you don't have a moment where you've confessed your sin, ask him to forgive you, and you've made him the king of your life, then you are not converted. You are not saved. You are not his child. You are still a child of wrath, destined for destruction, as Ephesians says. Being in church makes you no more a Christian than being in a garage makes you a car. So you will never just slide and drift into Christianity. There is a hard break where you go from darkness to light, death to life, unbeliever to believer. If you're here this morning and you have been blinded and you have thought that you belong to the Lord and you're realizing you really don't, because you've never had this moment where you confessed to the Lord and made him the Lord of your life, asked him to forgive you of your sin, man, let today be that day. Stop playing mind games. Stop being blind. See the truth. Stop thinking you're a good person because you're not. The Bible tells us that our best works are filthy rags before him. And in the original Hebrew, it means minstrel rags. That's, your best works are minstrel rags. So stop relying on your own goodness. This is never going to be enough. But the Lord in his grace and his kindness could save a terrorist like Paul, lavish his grace and love on Paul, and he will do the same to you. Do the same to you. But there's got to be a moment. It looks different for all of us. It may not be big and dramatic. It might be in your own bed, in your own heart, with your parents. It'll look very different for all of us, but do not delay. There must be a moment where you give your life to Christ. Finally, God pursues us, he humbles us, he opens our eyes, and he sends us. When God told Ananias to go see Paul, Ananias was like, hang on a minute, God. Like, we talk about the same guy? We talk about the guy that's like killing us for fun and has got like approval by the government to do so? We talk about that guy? Surely we're talking about somebody else. And God's like, no, I'm talking about that guy. I want you to go to him and pray for, for, the, for his, his sight to be regained. And God says, I love this line. He says, Paul is his chosen instrument to take the gospel to the nation. I love how God just like, hey, this dude was killing my people, and now I'm going to use him to make more of them. I love that. You see, for a while after Paul came to faith, he was baptized, the church was skeptical. They kind of thought he was a spy. Like, I don't know if this guy real. I think he's just trying to get in here and figure out who we are so he can bring in the troops and round us up. They weren't sure that Paul was genuine. They thought he wanted to expose him. But in reality, God took the worst man, a terrorist, and used him to take the gospel to the nations. See, here's the point. I don't care what your past is. I don't care what your present is. I don't care what dumb things you've done, what bad decisions you've made. God wants to not only save you, he wants to change your life, he wants to make you whole, he wants to use you in the world. There is nothing about you or your past or your mistakes that prohibits you from being used mightily by God today. Nothing. There is nothing in your life. You might say to me, Brent, you don't know what I've been through. 
I can imagine. I've had a lot of people come to me, Brent, you, you never heard this. And then they tell me, go, no, yeah, I heard that. There is nothing in your life so bad that God doesn't want to save you, love you, make you his child, and send you and use you in the world for good. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers from the 1700s, he used to train up young preachers, and when he did, he would take them to a graveside, to this cemetery, and he would put all of them in front of headstones, and he would say, all right, I want you all to practice your sermons for Sunday right here. They're like, "Uh, okay. And so they would like start preaching to the headstone awkwardly. And Charles Spurgeon would say, I want you to realize that this is what you do every single Sunday. That the same power that would cause this corpse to come up out of the ground is the same power required to save a lost soul. And so I don't care if your story is one of drugs and gang violence and radical conversion, or if your story is I was five years old at VBS and I love singing those songs and those songs made me love Jesus. The same power that raises the dead, the same power that saves the gangbanger is the same power that saves the five-year-old. And here's what I want you to understand. Your story is amazing. Your story of coming to Christ is amazing. No matter if it makes for a good movie or if it's in your mind kind of boring. It's an amazing work of God's love and grace. And you should be proud to share your story because it's a story about how God pursued you and rescued you and raised you from the dead. And that story is amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, this morning we gather in this room and in a room this size... We know that not everyone in this room belongs to you. And Lord, we want to make it really clear this morning that your word says that you can't be good enough. That our word, that our best is filthy rags. That all who sin fall short of the glory of God and deserve your wrath and justice. And that is a good, right thing because we want you to be just. But God, you have given us a way out. You've given us mercy. You've sent your son to die on a cross to pay our debt, to pay our sin, to pay for our evil. He took the punishment in our place. And you will grant us this favor, grant us this grace, grant us this forgiveness, free of charge to us. But the charge was paid on a hill called Golgotha the Skull. So God, this morning, if there are those in this room who have said the words or believed the words, I'm good enough, I live a good life, God, would you break their heart of stone right now and show them that they can never be good enough. That Paul, who thought he was the most righteous man in the world, had to be confronted with you face to face before he realized Lord, would you let the scales fall from their eyes this morning to see the truth? God, if they're here this morning, they've never had a moment that they thought they could just slide into Christianity. They thought they could just slide into your good graces. Show them this morning that there is no gradual coming to you, that they must leave darkness and come to light, that they must go from death to life and a resurrection. And that all they got to do is come and confess their sin and ask you to forgive them and say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. And you will do it. God, this morning, for whoever is sitting in these seats and who is battling in their head right now, is that me? Is that me? Show them clearly if it's them or not. And as we sing this song, I want to challenge you. Come up here and talk to me. There's people on the side, some men on the sides. They'll talk to you too. Run up here. 
And we will celebrate with you. We're not going to shame you. We're not going to go, oh, man, I can't believe it's this. No, we're going we're gonna to hug your neck, and we're going to cry, and we're going to love it. Because we want you to be our brother and sister. Before it's too late, God, would you, would you show them who they are and need to come to you? God, give us the grace to respond the way we need. In Christ, and we pray all people say. Church, respond however the Spirit leads you. Let's stand together and sing.